Nothing makes you work harder than love. If you don't believe me, you should see a dad at the beach. Yeah, y'all know what I'm talking about. That joker will lug 150 pounds worth of beach gear, 200 yards across the sand in the blazing hot sun, only to get down to the edge of the beach, sit in his chair, begin to doze off, and realize he's being buried in sand. Only love works like that. Only love works like that. Or maybe a dad takes his family on a family camping trip and he's just wanting to get his kids in the woods and he's got envisioned all of this time fishing and making memories and they leave him and he never sees them again. Meanwhile, he's wrestling with sewage hoses and digging out chairs and setting up the grill. All the dads say amen. You know what I'm talking about. Only love makes you work like that. Only love would compel you to sing to a little person that wakes you up at 2 o'clock in the morning. Only love would cause you to, to comfort the very person that pees on your favorite couch. Only love. Nothing makes you work harder than love. And if the charge were to come to me, that I focus too much on joy, too, too much on grace, too much on love, that's the case that I would make. I am not anti-obedience. And I am not anti-holiness. And I am not anti-behavior. But I am anti-guilt. And I am anti-performance because guilt and performance cannot sustain you. Because the type of obedience, the radical obedience that I understand the scriptures to call us to, the radical self-denial that I understand the scriptures to call us to, only grace can sustain it. Only love can keep it moving forward. Only love can hold it down. This morning as we begin to see the, the unveiling of the law of God to his people, I think that's how we are to understand it. That we are to understand that the origination of the, of the law is love. The sustainability of the law is love. And obedience to the law is love. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me this morning to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. As we continue through the big story to see how all of this fits together for God's redemption. So if we understand that Israel has entered into a covenant with God, every covenant has stipulations. It has, has ways that you can show that you are observing and, and living beneath that covenant. And what we receive in the Ten Commandments is Israel's stipulations of the covenant that they now have with God. So would you stand with me as we read these stipulations together? It says in verse 1, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do your, any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. I can remember being in the lunchroom in high school and really having my belief system questioned in a way that was new. And I can remember thinking that maybe, maybe there was some logic to what they were saying. That the question began to come up, that if I believe that God had forgiven me of every sin past, every sin present, and every sin future, and I did, then why was it that I was so concerned with obedience today? That even if I disobeyed, even if I was unfaithful, even if I disregarded what God was said, if I believed that to be true, then I was forgiven anyway. So, so what was the difference? What, what difference did it make? And I can remember my mind racing. And searching for a rational solution that would kind of shut down the, the argument and, and fill in, you, know, you just feel like the blood drains out of your face when you're in a situation like that. And, and just being there and realizing that it's not just me that's on trial here. Like, this is Jesus. And like, I know that Jesus is right, but I'm struggling to come up with an answer in this situation. And I, and I can remember as my mind was racing, the only thing that I could land on and the only thing that I could say was because I love him. Because I love him. That I obey him and I seek to be faithful to him and I try to submit to him and I try to honor him because I love him. Now y'all, there was a lot flawed about Cody Hale's understanding of the gospel and the scriptures in high school, okay? And, and I was anything less than a stellar Christian. And there's probably still a lot that's flawed. But that's the gospel. That's the gospel. That gospel obedience is always from love, not for love. That gospel obedience is always from passion. It is not to receive affection. That the call in our lives to obey the Lord is really a call in our lives to respond to the Lord in love and to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our strength, and with all of our mind. And that's how I want us to understand the big story. We're talking about this series, the big story. What I don't want you to believe that this means is this is not us going to the Old Testament trying to decipher some Old Testament code so that we can see a picture of Jesus where there was no picture of Jesus. 
What we mean by the big story is what I want you to see is that all of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is teaching us New Testament Christianity. It's teaching us what it means to live by Christ's sufficiency, not ours. It's teaching us that we are saved by Christ's works, not our own works. It's teaching us that we are redeemed by God's grace and God's mercy, not by our own merit, not by our own observance of the law. So what I want us to see this morning as we look at the Ten Commandments is I want us to see why the forgiven obey. Why the forgiven obey? Why those that have received grace and are promised grace and are assured grace would continue to seek to live a life of obedience and faithfulness. And what I, the reason I think, I want to frame this up and then unpack this as we go, is the reason that the forgiven obey is, first of all, God loves them. God loves them. And then God's love for them transforms their love for Him. And now their love for God transforms their love for others. So the starting place here is that God loves us. God loves us. So Saturday, all right? Saturday was a big day in the hell house. I don't know if you guys have heard, but on Saturday, I held my son for the first time. For the first time. And, you know, I tell Megan, like, Abraham, this is the child of my old age, right? Like, and uh, Alan, Alan said, what about me? I said, man, we've got a picture of you like the Russians do with linen up in our, claw, up in our kitchen. Because that's, that's true, <laughs> true courage. But, I mean, you're just tired her. You know what I'm saying? But I think also, also, having two other children, you know what this little creature in your hands mean in a way that maybe you didn't when you were a new parent for the first time. You know what they become, and you, you know what they represent, and you know, you know the love that you have for them, and you know the, the relationship and the bond that is just indescribable. You, you, it's something you, 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 you've sensed existentially that you, you can't articulate. And I, can, I was holding him there in the labor and delivery room, and I kept saying the same thing over and over, you know, like that proud dad that's out of his mind, and I just kept saying, I'm so proud of him. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. And I kept telling Megan and telling the doctors and telling the nurses, this is my son. I'm so proud. I'm so proud. And, and, and then I, I told Megan, I, I, after a few minutes of this, I said, you know what's weird? He's never done anything to make me proud. He's not earned a scholarship. He's not went and helped the neighbor without being asked. He's not proven himself to be a man of integrity. He's not shown himself to be a faithful husband or a good dad. He's not done any of those things. I hope all of those things become true. But here I am holding him in my hands, and the only thing that I know is this is my son. This is my son, and I'm proud of my son. I'm proud that this is my boy. And I begin to think, that is a picture of God's love for his people. Here they are at the top of Sinai before they've received the law. Like my boy in my hands, before they've done bad or good, before they've been obedient or disobedient, before they've been faithful or unfaithful. And God is there and he's giving them and he's entered into covenant and he's saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will obligate myself to you. I love you. You are my son. You are my son. I want you to carry this forward for a second though. Megan and I are not perfect parents, all right? Megan's a lot closer than I am, 
but neither of us are perfect parents. We're probably like all of you. We always feel like we're like one step away from ruining our kids for life. You feel like that? Like, you, you know, you're, like, you're, you're, you're just one bad day for just ruining their whole understanding of who God is and their future. That's, that's where we are. But as imperfect as we are, if we continue to love him, if we continue to love him with all of our energy, with all of our strength, with all of our mind, with everything that we've got, with, as, as, as flawed, as, as up and down as I am, as, as moody as I can be, as, as, as inconsistent, as hypocritical as I can be, that if I will continue to love my son with everything that I've got until, his, until my last and dying day, what would you expect? How would you expect him to respond to me? You would expect imperfect as he is, flawed as he is, rebellious as he will inevitably be at times, that he'll want to honor his dad. That he'd want to honor his dad. Now, I, I know that, that adult children are sinners. I know all children are sinners, and, and some go wayward, and, and some. But, but the expectation would be that he would see the love that his dad has for him, the relentlessness of it, the, the consistency of it, and even on my worst day and on his worst day, that what he would want to do deep in his heart, if he could explain it, would be he would want to honor his dad. That's the starting place of the law, you see. That's the starting place of the law. See, do you see what he says? It, we, we think of the Ten Commandments as starting with verse 3 when it says, you shall have no other gods before me. But the Ten Commandments start in verse 2. They start in verse 2. Verse 2 is the first part of the first commandment. And you see what it says? It says the same thing three different times. I am the Lord your God. That is, I am your covenant God. I am the God who loves you. I am the God who has covenanted with you. I am the God that has made promises to you. I am the God that is defending you. I am the God that is abiding with you. I am the God that loves you. I am the Lord your God. I am the one that delivered you from Egypt. I am the one that delivered you from slavery. In other words, I am I love you with everything that I've had. I have provided you with my love. I have proven to you my love. How now will you respond? How now will you respond? Will you worship other gods? Will you take my name in vain? Will you dishonor me on the Sabbath? Will you steal? Will you lie? Will you want more than I have given you? Will you not be satisfied in me? Having received a love as deep and abiding, as perfect as the love of God, how, how is it that you will respond? And y'all, that, that is the understanding of the law. That is the starting place of the law. See, God's holiness and love converge in God's commands. How do we know what holiness is? Holiness is abstract, isn't it? Holiness is abstract. You might know, uh, like, Holy Bible. You, you, we say that God is holy. We might think purity, but, but it's more than purity. We might think righteousness, but it's more than righteousness. We might think, we might think it's perfection, but it's, it's more perfection, more than perfection. It's everything, in fact. It's all of God's attributes manifested together as a composite represented by a single word, holiness. And what ability does a finite, sinful mind have to comprehend that? We don't have it. And so God gives us a concrete picture in the law so that we can see what holiness looks like. Just, just the edges of it, just, just, just the components of it. And we see enough of holiness in the law to know this, that God is holy and I am not holy. Because as simple and straightforward as the law is, I have broken every command. I cannot upkeep it. 
I cannot uphold it. And so it shows me that, that he is holy and that I am not holy. But strangely enough, it shows us something else. How do we know that God loves us? The law. The law. The law shows that God is willing to live in relationship with those that are not holy. The, the law shows that God has a love that is relentless. And even though we don't meet his standard of holiness, even though all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that God's love is so relentless that he, through Christ, will satisfy the law on our behalf, that he will bridge the, the gap between love and holiness that is found in us. That God's law, law shows his willingness for a relationship with us and our unworthiness for that relationship. And so God's love for us transforms our love for him. God's love for us transforms our love for him. That's why he says, you shall have no other gods before. Like if you were to read this literally in the Hebrew, it would say, there, you shall have no other gods before my face. Okay, so, so what he's not saying here is you can have other gods so long as I'm number one. He's saying, before my face, you shall worship no others. Before my face, you shall elevate nothing to a, a similar level of affection. You shall not aim your life at anything else before my face. And my face is ever-present. My face is omnipotent. My face is inescapable. Ask Adam, who tried to hide from me in the garden. And so he's saying, so, so he's, what he's saying is, having experienced my love, having known my redemption, having seen me deliver you from Egypt, why else, who else will you go to? Who else will love you the way that I have loved you? Who else will care for you the way that I have cared for you? Who else will provide for you the way that I have provided for you? You see, salvation changes how we think of God's love because salvation changes our position in God's house. We're not slaves working to earn the approval and love of our master. We are children operating beneath the economy of God's love, of our Father's love in His house. And that's how gospel obedience is always from love and never for love. We obey because of salvation, not for salvation. What might surprise you is to realize that it's in the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law. Because we, we don't think of giving of the law in love but it's in, the, it's in the Ten Commandments the first time that we're told of God's love in all of the Bible. Do you know that? Look at verse 6. You say it there in verse 6. It says in verse 6, But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's the first time we read of God's love in all the Bible. Now, certainly in Genesis, in the first part of Exodus, it's been implied. We've, we've drawn that out as we've preached through this, right? Like, like you can see the, God, the love of God. We, we can see it illustrated. But the first time that it's stated explicitly is in the giving of the law. It's in the giving of the law. And so what we should see is that the Ten Commandments are much more than ten rules. They are ten invitations to worship. They are ten invitations to love. They are ten invitations to respond to the love of God in a way that exalts God in your life and exalts God in your marriage and exalts God in your family. That they are the way that you respond to the love of God. I wish we had time to go line by line and through all the ten, but we just don't. And so what I want us to see are, are two major divisions, two major ways that I think we can categorize the laws that are helpful. The first division that I want you to see is the inward-outward nature of the law. The inward-outward nature of the law. See, if you'll notice, 
it's, it's bookended by inward laws, by, by those laws that, that affect the heart, those laws that you can't see, those laws that you can't prove in a court of law. How could I prove that the Lord your God is, uh, that you love him with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength? I can't prove that. How can I prove in your life that there are no other gods before him in your life? I can't prove that. And then you look at verse 10, it's, it says, do not covet. Don't, don't covet what your neighbor has. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Do not covet. How can I prove whether or not you're jealous? I can't prove that. I can't prove whether you're satisfied in Christ or not satisfied. I can't prove if you believe that you'd be happy if your income was raised by zero. I, I, can't, I can't prove all of that. I can't prove that when you drive by a wealthier man's house than you, if you're sitting there saying, I deserve it more than, I, I can't prove all of that. Th- th- these are issues of the heart. These, affect your, th- these define who you are inwardly. They, are, they are, are postures. These are not things that can be proven in the court of law. And what's ironic is, I think that we should see Command 1 and Command 10 is essentially being the same command. For whatever you covet, you worship. Covet is just another name for worship. It's another word for worship. It's what you believe will satisfy you. It's what you believe is worthy of the aim of your life. It's what you believe is worthy of you laying down the Sabbath that you might take on a side hustle and raise your standard of living. It's whatever you believe is worthy of your devotion Worthy of your time, worthy of your thoughts, worthy of your energy. So to covet is to worship. To have no other gods before the Lord is to worship. They're both worship. And then, commands 2 through 9, we should see those as, as outward, right? I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to take the Lord's name in vain. I'm, I'm going to observe the Sabbath. I'm, I'm not going to murder. I'm, I'm going to honor my... These are outward behaviors. These are outward things that we do. That is, commands 1 and 10 speak to what's in the heart, and commands 2 through 9 speak to the overflow of the heart, what comes out of the heart. And it's this connection that we're supposed to make when we read phrases like what we read in verse 6 when it says, those who love me and keep my commandments. In fact, you'll find this language throughout the Bible. If you'll think back to John's sermon last week in 1 John, and man, that was a phenomenal sermon on the love of God. And what does, what does the apostle say? He says, you say that you love God, but you don't keep his commandments. The love of God is not in you. The love of God is not in you. That love and obedience are synonymous terms. Love and obedience are synonymous terms. That, that love is inward and obedience is outward. That they are demonstrating on one hand who you are and then you are demonstrating who you are by what you do. You see, it's how we reconcile love and obedience that makes all the difference. This is why Jesus will call them the two greatest commandments. That if our obedience is for love, then it is anti-gospel. But if our obedience is from love, then it is the essence of the gospel. It is the essence of the gospel because it calls us to love the Lord our God. If you have a version of Christianity that excludes the necessity for you to love God and to love people... You don't have New Testament Christianity. You don't have the gospel. You don't have salvation. You are excluded from the kingdom. The outward commands are meant to reveal the inward reality. That what your heart loves, your life will follow. You know, I used to say that I loved a deer hunt. Like if you would have asked me the things that, that were that my hobbies and all the things that I enjoy 
one of the things that I would have told you is I loved deer hunting. And then I realized, then I realized that I never went deer hunting. And that if I had the opportunity to go deer hunting, I wasn't even excited about those opportunities, right? Like I'd be like, I don't want to get up. I don't want to be cold. I just don't want to do, I don't want to sit in the woods and be still. Like I just, I just don't want to do that. And, and so what I began to realize is I don't love deer hunting. I don't love deer hunting. If I loved it, I would do it. If I loved it, I would, I would make time for it. If, if, I, if I loved it, I would look forward to it. If I loved it, I would be energized by it. I wouldn't feel guilty about it. I wouldn't feel, I wouldn't feel drudgery toward it. For how many of us, for how many of us is that our relationship with Jesus? If I were to ask you what's most important in your life, you would tell me, well, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus is the center of my family. Jesus is the center of my marriage. Jesus is the center of my life. But the truth is, the truth is, is that you don't live for Jesus. And when you have opportunities to live for Jesus, you aren't excited about those opportunities. When you have opportunities to serve Jesus, you aren't energized by those opportunities. Instead, they feel like drudgery to you. And the question is, is if that is true, do you actually love Jesus? Jesus uses a similar line of thinking to help us to understand the nature of the law. Jesus points out that we're not just to live by the letter of the law. That's what the Pharisees always want to do. And that's why he says in Matthew chapter 5, as he begins his Sermon on the Mount, like you've got to have a righteousness that is greater than the Pharisees. Because we've talked about this a lot. Legalism is easier, right? Legalism is easier. Tell me what I need to do. I'll do those things. Then I'll move on with my life. Legalism allows for loopholes, doesn't it? Legalism allows for the loopholes because my responsibility in legalism is to follow the letter of the law. So God says, don't murder. I, I'm not going to murder anybody. Simple enough. God says, don't take my name in vain. So I'm not going to say OMG, right? Like, so so God, I, I don't, we, don't, we don't allow a certain cuss word. The rest of them, just fine. But we're not going to allow that one. And so what we're saying is, what we're saying is, as long as I abide by the letter of the law, then I'm fine. But what Jesus teaches us, and the way we're under, to understand the, the Ten Commandments, the way we understand what Jesus, uh, his expansions on those in Matthew chapter 5, the way we should really understand all of ancient law is that they set a paradigm, they set a pattern. That the idea of the Ten Commandments is to say it is these and it is those like these. It is those that, that brings you not to the letter of the law, but beneath the spirit of the law. And so there's a second pattern that I think is important for us to see. It's, it's not just inward, outward. It's vertical, horizontal. It's vertical, horizontal. That it has to do with our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. If you think about this, the first four of the commandments have to do with what? They have to do with our relationship with God. No other gods before me. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Do not worship idols. Keep out the, uh, carve out the Sabbath and keep it holy. The other six commandments, they all have to do with our relationships with one another. Honor your parents. Do not murder. Uh, keep, uh, 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 do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not covet. Do not, do not, uh, do not bear false witness. All of those have to do with our relationship with one another. So there's this horizontal, vertical relationship that, that is supposed to be manifest through the law. And so what we see is, is that our, God's love transforms our love for Him, but then our love for God transforms our love for others. I want you to think about how Jesus applies these, all right? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, and if you'll remember, I read this as we came into uh, the service in, this, in our Start With the Word this morning. Jesus says, have you, bought, have you not bought an AR-15 and mowed down all your neighbors? 
great. That's awesome. Good for you. Let me ask you this. Have you, have you harbored bitterness in your heart? Have you kept hatred in your heart? Because if you have harbored bitterness and you have harbored hatred and you have treasured it up and stored it in your heart, then you are in violation of the spirit of God's command not to murder. That, that if you are, are harboring hatred towards your brother, then you are in violation of God's love. That you are in violation of God's command. You know what he says to do? I think this is helpful for us. It shows the relationship between the first commandment and all the other commandments. He says, so are you at the altar and worshiping? Are you there expressing your love for God? Are you there expressing your devotion to God? Are you there expressing your commitment to God? Get up from the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. Go and repent. Go and forgive. That's how you're going to worship today. God doesn't want your sacrifice. God wants your repentance. God doesn't want your sacrifice. God wants your forgiveness the way that you will worship God is by loving your brother, by refusing to hate him, by refusing to harbor bitterness. So there's this relationship between, God's, between your vertical worship of God and your horizontal love of one another. And he says, once you've forgiven, now come back to the altar. Come back to the altar. Let me think of another example of this. He says, have you not slept with your neighbor's wife? Well, that's good. You shouldn't sleep with your neighbor's wife. But have you lusted in your, after your neighbor's wife? Have you lusted after the women that you've seen? Because if so, you were in violation of the spirit of the seventh commandment. You were in violation of what, what God has said. And so he says, he says so, so to avoid judgment, rip your eye out. Cut off your arm. In other words, deal seriously with your sin. Don't, 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 don't. Skate, because if you skate, what you are displaying is a lack of love for God and a lack of love for your neighbor. A lack of love, love for one another. You know what's ironic about that? Is that it's most common for us to justify our sexual sin, how? With love. Isn't that right? If, you, if we were to go and we were to find any two high schoolers sleeping together that would have the, the, the moral compass to say that that is immoral or, or that is against what God has said. You know what they would tell us? But we love each other. Of course we're going to get married one day. Of course we're going to get married one day. So that's fine. If we were to find a young engaged couple or we were to find a young college couple and they were, they were sleeping together and we were to go and we were to ask them, the most likely response would be, but we love each other. Of course we love one another. If you were to go and you were to find a man in the midst of an affair, and you were to ask him why he had an affair, you know what the most likely response is? My wife did not show me love, and so I went to someone who did. I went to someone who did show me acceptance. I went to someone that did respect me. I went to someone that I, to where I felt loved. I was looking for love. I needed love, and here I found love. If you were to find a homosexual couple, and we were to ask them to explain the situation. You know how they would frame it up? They would frame it up as love. How can love be wrong? How can love be immoral? And the problem here, though, is not love. Sin, sexual sin isn't because of love. It's because of a lack of love. That sexual sin is because you covet pleasure more than you love God. That sexual sin is because you desire enjoyment at the expense of the family. Sexual sin, and my goodness, y'all, my goodness, it is every other 
commandment encompassed within. It is the, the sin of stealing, the sin of coveting, the sin of lying to make yourself look better or to advance yourself in your career. It is, the, it is to, to take the answers off of somebody else's biology exam so that you get credit for something that is not yours. All of them ha- boil down to a single reality. All sin boils down to God's relationship isn't as valuable to you as your pleasure. It isn't your treasure. In other words, he isn't your only God. He isn't your only God. He isn't the singular reality in your life. And so all of these horizontal immoralities in your life, all of these horizontal disobediences in your life are the result of a violation of the vertical love that have been beckoned and called forward by you, by Almighty God. See, there are two types of couples that come to me for counseling. Two types of couples. Their marriage is not what they want it to be. It's not where they should, where, perhaps where they believe it should be. They've experienced sin. They've hurt one another. The first type is the one that they come and they feel guilty. And they want to be able to go to their families and say, look, we did all we could. We gave it a college try. We even went to a session of counseling or two. And so they believe that, that they can alleviate the guilt that they have, having already resolved and decided to divorce and to split by coming to one or two sessions of counseling. So now they're free. The other couple, though, and very often their situation is even more dire than the first couple. They will come and they will say, we will do whatever it takes for as long as it takes. We will work as hard as it takes. We will do whatever we need to do because we will not split. We will stay together. And what's the difference, y'all? What's the difference? The difference is love. The difference is love. That love makes you determined, not lazy. Love makes you determined and not lazy. So you see, the answer to our obedience problem, the answer to our faithfulness problem is not guilt. Guilt cannot sustain us. The answer to our obedience problem is love. Let's pray to the Lord together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.